internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Glass Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids for our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I'm here to do some business with the big iron on my hip. With me is... <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and I'm, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> uh, and I'm Sarah, and I, I'm all-round confused. <laughs> <laughs> This is the show where we dive down Wikipedia rabbit holes. We start off on the same page every week, and we click around using hyperlinks until we find something that we cannot stop reading. Usually this is what normal people do when they procrastinate, but we make time to do it on purpose. Where did we start out this week? You picked it, you dingus. On the page. Yeah, you picked the page from Glory, but it wasn't (gasps) a page. It was like a page with a heap of links to different Glory things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't. Okay. Yeah. Let's end that sentence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew exactly where you're going with that. <laughs> end. End scene. Okay. End scene. <laughs> we started on all kinds of glory. We started with glory. That's right. And it was very open ended. We each jumped down a glory hole. No, that's what. <laughs> No, that's what we're trying to avoid. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but how perfect is it? (laughs) Well, it depends on the hole. No. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Please just everyone tell me where you ended up. (laughs) I ended up on Doomsday Colts. Ooh. Very on brand, I think. Very you. Very, very on brand. <laughs> but I'm nonetheless excited. That that sounds very intriguing. Yes. <laughs> Drew, what are you going to share with the class? I ended up on uh, active noise control or active noise canceling. Oh. Ooh. I love thinking about that. When, when, my, when I do wear my noise canceling headphones, I'm like, I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing over there. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up on Imaginary Friends. Aww, that's so cute. Yeah. (laughs) That's so so sweet. (laughs) I wanted to know all about them. I'm excited. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm very excited too. We've got the whole spectrum of, like, innocence to... Evil. (laughs) Evil. And then we just noise cancel on the way. (laughs) (laughs) How about we do that? We start at innocence, we end with evil, and we take a noise canceling. Dive in the the middle. (laughs) I like it. All the reverse start with evil, end with some innocence. Oh, yeah. What do you reckon? Actually, I like that because I don't want to send anybody off with sad feelings. Yeah, let's. Okay, we'll start with the evil. But before we do, very, very important, we've got question of the week. <gasps> I almost forgot. Which this week, drum roll. <laughs> it is what is the oldest piece, piece of clothing you still wear to this day? I'm going to let Drew go first. Oof. You uh, you picked the wrong person. <laughs> I have I have no like attachment to my clothing. It's just like, <laughs> like zero. Uh, so I think the oldest shirt I have, and it's like a t-shirt, um, was from a concert that I went to, and I really liked the band, so I bought a t-shirt there, and that's like the most sentimental thing I have. <laughs> it's it's got t-shirt. to be embarrassing. Aww. It's what is the band because you're not telling us. <laughs> Please be Jonas Brothers. No, it's the band name is Twerp or Tupperware Remix Party. What? <laughs> That's so cute. What type of music were they? Just how do I describe it? They're like eighties, eighties like 
synth wave kind of. I don't know. It's 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 hard to describe. They're 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 great. I guess they gotta be. Yeah, <laughs> I love them. That's so cute. I love that. <laughs> That's amazing. Before I jump to you, Lindsay, I have a listener submitted um, one. Yes, please. This is from Instagram. Uh, from oh no, it's crispy. And he said, or they said, some university basketball shorts my friend fished out of a dumpster in 2005. Oh, my. You don't know how old that is. They could be infinite years old. You have no idea. Wow. Double points. Double points for Chris. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Lindsay? I also have some listener submissions. (gasps) You do. Plural. Wow. So on Twitter... Um, our good friend, good old friend at this point, we've known him for about a month, Johannes of <laughs> Austria <laughs> and of Monochrome. <laughs> um, he had a soccer jersey from 1972 that he still wears. Um, wow. I can't, I wasn't alive, so I can't, can't claim anything from that period. <laughs> um, but I thought that was, that kicks the shit out of mine because mine was just a um, hand-me-down from my older cousin when I was in elementary school and she must have been in middle school. Um, and it's just like one of those souvenir like tie-dye shirts from um, an aquarium. <laughs> I don't know why I kept it. <laughs> oh, yes. But I still wear it. Like very 90s. It is very nice. It's like it's like different shades of purple tie-dye, which is funny because purple is probably my least favorite color. And it's like clearly made for like a 10-year-old, but I still wear it. Like I <laughs> <laughs> And I I got another submission from somebody named Matt in Newfoundland. Newfoundland? Newfoundland? in uh, Canada and it's kind of a border case so this might go toe-to-toe with yours Sarah because you gave us a hint but he used to work in a pawn shop and one of the items that they had in the shop was a necklace that Alexander Graham Bell bought for his wife wow (laughs) that is so cool yeah I thought that was the perfect bridge between episodes honestly yeah it is if you haven't listened to our last episode with Alexander Graham Bell you definitely should because he is a total legend and sweetheart well I think this bridges nicely with my one because mine probably is a necklace I've got an antique um like silver medallion necklace from 1900 that I still wear because it's really pretty and I really like it I say I still wear like I lived in the 1900 to wear it then. <laughs> I'm a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> how, wait, so how did you acquire this necklace? I bought it at an antique shop years and years ago. I think I was like 18 and I saw it and I thought it was the coolest thing because this is like Aww. my first piece of antique something. But I wear a lot of vintage clothes. I like... I like old stuff. If you guys want to send us your old stuff or be featured on our question of the week, you now can answer them on Instagram as well as on our Twitter. So please come hang out with us for extra memes and for extra questions. So I think we should dive in with the doomsday cult. Yes. And we should start with a quick trigger warning that people probably are familiar that I'm going to chat about some some of the most notorious doomsday cults, which do include mass suicides. Um, We won't be going into any graphic detail, but just 
you know, take care of yourselves if you don't want to listen. Skip to 2939 if you want to hear the rest of Sarah's segment with no reference to suicide, or skip to 4028 if you want to hear the start of my segment. Okay, let's start with Doomsday Cult. So probably everyone's pretty familiar with just a cult in general um, being something that kind of... It's a classic idea of like brainwashing your members or having them be a little bit too committed to an idea in general. But the the doomsday cult idea is an expression or the actual wording of it um, didn't actually come into effect until about, I think it was 1965 which I thought was amazing because Mm, as I'll touch on, doomsday cults have been around for thousands and thousands of years. Um, But the first use of it didn't come, didn't come until um, a researcher was working on trying to understand um, the Unification Church of the United States. Um, So his name was John Loftland. He was a sociologist um, and he was doing his PhD thesis in trying to understand how people worship and how people become tied to a worshipper that is predicting the end because that's a very weird relationship to have with not only just it doesn't necessarily have to be a religion but with a belief that you were literally following this to the end of the world or the end of your life yeah like why are we so attracted to absolute downers yes yes exactly (laughs) and this is actually a like a fascinating thing because it was something that a lot of psychology studies have worked on is what makes people drawn to this idea of following um not only cults but doomsday cults this idea that you live in fear because the world is going to end imminently Mm. and they found that it's kind of this um this result of people uh, end up turning to this cataclysmic worldview is what it's called um after they repeatedly try to find meaning in more mainstream Mm -hmm. things and maybe they don't fit in so oh yeah so it's kind of heartbreaking because these people are just trying to find something where they belong and a lot of the time with cults and especially doomsday cults uh the leaders are happy to have you know anyone and any anyone and everyone is welcome um which is what life should be like in general but it's often mm-hmm. not <laughs> life should be like a doomsday cult yeah it should be but with less doom but it's heartbreaking that people obviously you know maybe they don't fit in with the sporting teams or the right. cool kids or whatever it might be or they don't really fit in with the office click and they find that they fit in with a heap of other people who felt like they didn't fit in which is kind of heartbreaking yeah but i think very relatable yeah also very relatable so uh another thing that is interesting in some of the Um, like psychological studies that have been done on people who tend to go into doomsday cult believerism is that so oftentimes um, say a cult is predicting the end of the world in a month time so you're dedicated to worshipping to doing whatever you can to plan for the end of the world now that date comes and goes the world doesn't end what happens then and you would expect right i guess logically you kind of expect a lot of people to be like huh well this is a load of bullshit i'm a i'm a leave now thank you for your time but they've actually found in studies that people become more committed to the group so off more times than not people will often become more committed to the group and the leader and and take it as a signal that the end is just going to be even bigger which blows my mind (laughs) it's crazy imagine being told that the world's going to end it doesn't and then not leaving 
I would feel so gypped. That's, I'd yeah. feel ripped off. I'd want a <laughs> refund. <laughs> so uh, do, do they get into like more of the set? Like I still don't really understand why that happens. Is this just a phenomenon that's observed or is there like an explanation as to why? So they got a little, they touched on this a little bit. So some of the times uh, they think it's just because of the closeness that the group um how close the group becomes over that time of imminent doom. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of that very quick building of relationships, building of trust. And once you've built that, it doesn't just go away within a day or, you know, it doesn't go away past a certain date. So they've built these really trusting, long-lasting relationships and they don't want to abandon them because that would be really heartbreaking, especially if they are people who have never had relationships that are that meaningful in their life before. Of course, right, right. And that, that might be all they have, yeah. Yeah, which is really heartbreaking, um, but also just very interesting in general. And so... Uh, the moment everybody's been waiting for is some doomsday cult. So I thought I'd give a little bit of background, a little bit of psychology before we dive into some of the most notorious doomsday cults that have happened in history or suspected doomsday cults, Mm. I should say, because does anyone remember the really shitty movie 2012? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you remember the hype around the end of the world that was meant to happen in 2012? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) We survived. Well, (laughs) so the reason there was this whole, like, kind of fear-mongering, this scare that the world was going to end in 2012, um, goes all the way back to the ancient Mayans because they were fantastic at keeping calendars and continuing calendar counting and they had a whole society built on accurate um representation of life and that included calendars and the mayan calendar ended on december 21st 2012 and there's a lot of speculation as to why. So I thought I would go, <laughs> thought I would go through and chat about why this might be. So uh, the Mayans um, were from about fifth uh, BCE onwards, um, mm-hmm. and they they stretched all the way from central Mexico down to Guatemala, and they are known for their advanced calendaring systems, among many many other advanced techniques that they had. Um, however, they tended, um, sorry, their their civilization. Uh, collapsed and they think it was a self-induced collapsed civilization scenario and basically what they think happened was that they got to a point where there wasn't enough food or people power to sustain everyday activity so more people needed to farm um, more people needed to do jobs that were less not less civilized but less not all of the other additional jobs that were were being going on and that included calendar keeping and things like that so they think they literally got to a point where there literally was not enough people to to keep all of these different jobs and activities going so some poor old bloke who was doing the calendar for 2012 lost his job on the 21st of december and he just never got to pick it back up again (laughs) oh my (gasps) it just it it become of little importance when they were trying so hard just to sustain um a civilization that it's probably just Someone forgot about it, and then 2,000 years later, everybody's predicting the end of the world. Oh, my God. They're probably like, 
we got time. We're good. We've got like 2,000 years. We're good. Just <laughs> That'll hold us for a while. That'll hold us for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Holy shit, I never knew that. I know. So that was, they're not technically a doomsday cult, but there was some cultism around the idea that the world would end in 20, 2012. So I thought that was a nice little... Uh, a little f- entry into doomsday cults. Um, so the next yeah. one I'm going to touch on <laughs> is something called Adventism. Have you guys ever heard of that? No. No. Ooh, okay. So this was invented by American Baptist preacher William Miller, Miller sorry, and he was the founder and creator of Adventism, and he was also the heir to the Jehovah Witnesses um, creation as well, so very much in that scope of religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. So this was back in the 19th century, so 1820s or so. He proposed that the end of the world would happen in 1844. (laughs) And this was based, very specific, 1844. Wait until you hear why. So (laughs) this was based off a Bible passage, which is Daniel 8.14. And it goes... Uh, on to 2,300 days, then shall the sanct- sanctity be cleansed. Um, I am obviously not a preacher, but basically it's saying 2,300 days is when shit is going to hit the fan. This was, eight, wait, what year was this? 1844. 1844. Why 1844? Okay. That's not 2,300 days. <laughs> I don't get it either. I don't understand. Oh, wait, 2,300 days. I don't understand. I don't understand. Like, when <laughs> When did the, When did he start counting this? It's so arbitrary. It is. But you know what gets me? Yeah. I remember taking a history class and learning about different revolutions in history. And there was a year in the mid-1800s that seemed like the entire fucking world was undergoing a revolution in every country. And so wow. I remember learning. So this was 1848. So just fucking missed it. Wow. But I remember learning that if I lived in 1848, I would have thought that the world was going to end because there were revolutions happening in Spain, Ireland, Belgium, Sweden, Switzerland, France, Denmark, Germany, like every fucking country in Europe was having its own revolution all at the same time. Oh, that would have been a very, very stressful place to live. You know, it would have been like everything is crumbling right now. It would have been very similar to how we're living right now. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is crumbling. Maybe that's a maybe that's like a a silver lining is like, hey, if the world didn't end in 1848, like we'll get through it. We'll get through it. It probably won't end today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really like that. We'll put put that on a t-shirt. If the world didn't end in 1848, it's not going to end today. <laughs> that's good. That's really good. But like RIP to this guy who is four years off as far as I'm concerned. I know. So I just did some quick math. I, so 2,300 days is roughly six and a half or six and a third years. So I'm not sure if he just read this passage and was like, whoop. I've read it. Six <laughs> years later, it's got to end. Oh my god! Uh, but he was ser- he was dead serious about it, and he was preaching that it was going to be the second coming of Jesus, preaching that the cleansing would be the apocalypse, 
and that there would be a great fire to get rid of all the evil. Um, So spoiler, spoiler alert, this did not happen. Uh, And it is now referred to in history books as the Great Disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, does that mean people wanted the world? Like, why is that disappointment? Like, that sounds like a good thing. I think they were so hyped up for the second coming of Jesus and were really disappointed when it didn't happen. Oh, right, right. Jesus didn't show up. Okay. He was invited to the party but didn't show up. Sorry, guys. Oh. I know. So that's a bummer, but nothing too crazy happened there apart from some disappointments. Um, We are going to dive in now to Jonestown, which this, again, trigger warning, we will be talking about a mass suicide. um, And I'm sure many people are probably familiar with Jonestown. um, But I think this is a fascinating study of like doomsday cultism and the way one person can lead literally hundreds of people to believe that it is the end of the world so uh jim jones was the leader of jonestown um, and in 1965 he claimed that the world would be engulfed by a nuclear war and do remember this was in the middle of the cold war as well so there was lots of legitimate fears around what was the world going to look like in 10 20 30 years because there was these two big superpowers um, being russia and america who had all the nuclear warheads and what was going to happen it was a big fear so he predicted that this would happen on july 15th of 1967 this did not happen and after it didn't happen he then just rebranded and and decided that he was going to establish his own uh, commune basically down in Ghana uh, and call it Jonestown and so then he was still preaching the end of the world but with a less certain date um, but by this time he had gathered many many followers who believed not only in his religious beliefs but his end of world cultism so now we probably all know how it ends Jones is now infamous for the November 18 um, 1978 mass murder of over 900 temple members which is just heartbreaking 900 people and if you are interested in looking at it and just you know be warned that you will see dead bodies there are aerial photos of the commune and it is heartbreaking and fascinating at the same time that there is hundreds and hundreds of people who all committed um like voluntarily from what we understand committed suicide it's such a huge number isn't it it is just insane and they they died by drinking um juice that was laced with cyanide and from another uh, documentary that I was listening to, he used to call upon all of the members to drink this like juice to say, you know, when you're ready, basically when we're ready, we will drink our juice and we will die. And today might be the day, today might not. So basically playing Russian roulette, if that makes sense, with his temple members and getting them to commit to drinking their juice and seeing if it would be the end. It's, it's also fascinating that so many people did do it that like 900 people committed to it all at once yes and many were families as well so lots of people who followed him down to jonestown from continental u.s were were families who had been brought into the belief system and often people who kind of had been down on their luck and you know it's that whole idea of not having anywhere else to really go or fit in um so yeah that's that's a really sad one Mm -hmm. And um, the final one, uh, the final large one, 
that I'm going to end on is the Heaven's Gate um, mass suicide as well. So I'm putting all the mass suicides together so then we can end on a higher note. So Heaven's Gate, holy guacamole. This is kind of, um, if anyone's not familiar, please Google Heaven's Gate. Just go to their Wikipedia page or any online information you can find and have a look at some of the stills that come from the Heaven's Gate videos. These kind of, it was like a cult enlisting video. What? And basically, yes, there's a whole Simpsons episode that actually is satire of this entire thing because so this was uh, back again, I think it started in the 60s, which is just crazy again. So during that Cold War period, um, but basically the whole Heaven's Gate belief system was that UFOs um, were gonna take away our souls to heaven um, and there was impending doom on the earth and the only way to escape was to turn against it by ascending to the next level and committing suicide with the leaders of the group. The leaders of the group were uh, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nadello. Um, Not great people. Uh, And they convinced followers that there would be a fast-approaching UFO and it would act as their mode of transport to the beyond. So basically, you need to get your soul on the UFO, otherwise, no beyond for you. Oh my god, that is so complicated. Isn't that complicated? Like, I'm, I'm amazed that people believed something so complex. Like, normally it's just, like, simple, like, Jesus is coming, and everyone's like, yeah, I know. But this is like, listen, we gotta time it. Something's gonna go really fast, overhead, gotta get ready. Soul's gonna go that way, plane's gonna go that way. You have no idea how correct you are, because it gets more complicated. Oh, no. It gets more complicated. So it's not just any UFO. It's a UFO that is trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet. Oh, my God. So when Hale-Bopp becomes visible, that is when you'll be able to ascend to the next level. So it's so convoluted. Um, and also give comets, comets a bad name. They're not, <laughs> they're not the end of the world. Um, but in the end... These insane leaders convinced 38 followers that their only way to reach heaven was to have died uh, as the Hale-Bopp comet is passing by. So they only had a, a limited window. And so at this point, they also had rented a big big house or compound, I guess, that they treated as a commune. Um, and to die, all the members took barbiturates um, and trigger warning not great they tied plastic bags over their heads Ugh. to make sure that if they didn't die from the barbiturates they would suffocate oh my god um but what is fascinating was that the people who found them found every single person bar two were tucked in their bed and had no plastic bag over their head and had um a purple cloth over their face and it turned out that they actually died in groups and the groups were responsible for cleaning up or positioning the next people who had died before them and so they only found two bodies that had died with the plastic bags over their heads because they were the ones the last ones to clean up which like the amount of preparation and apparently this happened over several days and in several groups is just absolutely mind-blowing to me that almost 40 people were living through this for multiple days right that's where i'm stuck it's in, it's really really sad and obviously these people really believed that this was the only way to reach their higher sentiment um so when when they were found, um, all 38 people were found in black shirts and black sweatpants. 
they all had the new Nike decadals on. And this actually, anyone who's into shoes, this caused a huge kind of, not an issue, but uh, so Nike stopped producing the decado, decadal sneaker after this because you know it was really traumatic and upsetting especially for the families of the victims Um, but those shoes now sell for ridiculous amounts of money because they're so rare and they're associated with this um this awful thing wow i have never never knew that never heard of that yeah gets weirder they also all had patches sewn onto their shirts reading heaven's gate away team which is heartbreaking like again they're dressing like they're they're ready to go on an adventure and they had five dollars and 75 cents in their pockets and apparently this was to represent the five dollar vagrancy um fee that if you know, apparently there was some type of fine that if you were fined for vagrancy you would get a five dollar fine so it was a bit of a ton in cheek that they had vibrate they had like vacated their bodies and then the 75 cents or the quarters were for phoning home oh which i know isn't that just heartbreaking so yeah. i i am also amazed at all of the preparation yes again insane insane amounts of preparation went into this and not only into the mass suicide but they sent out vhs tapes to all of their current and past members or anyone who was interested or associated with the group um, and basically it was videotapes of all of the people who had died with their farewell messages um, and their re- oh their God. reasons for ascending and why you had to ascend all this jazz wow that's haunting it is it's really sad i don't know why that hasn't been in a horror movie oh i'm sure it's i think i've definitely seen it um the simpsons definitely did an episode on it where homer accidentally joins a cult that is saying the ufo is coming and i've seen a lot of satire around that idea because i think this isn't only this isn't the only cult that believes the ufo is coming to get you um but this was definitely the most extreme because they they died hoping that they got on the ufo and you know what for their sake i hope they did yeah but yeah so that's that's the last bummer and i was gonna lift us back up again with the prophet hen of leeds oh no (laughs) (laughs) so no more trigger warning over this is all happy 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 normal doomsday now so the prophet of leeds so in 1806 A domesticated hen in Leeds, England, appeared to lay eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. Why, sir? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This hen was apparently every day laying eggs with Christ is coming inscribed on the egg. And so, as you can imagine, hundreds... The chicken can't even read! I know, the hen can't read, but the human could. And was like, this is the prophet lead. This is this is the prophet hen. So hundreds to thousands of people visited this poor hen and started to prepare for doomsday, thinking that the second coming of Jesus, I guess, in the Bible, I'm not a very, I'm not religious at all, but I don't know what it says in the Bible, but I'm guessing maybe the second coming means the apocalypse. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, that's the vibe I get. That's the vibe I get from most of these is that Jesus comes, it's not good. Um, (laughs) I have a vague sense of the end of the world from this. Yes, yes. It's like judgment day. It's like, you know, everyone's getting judged and their souls are either going to heaven or going to hell. Yeah, exactly. So everyone's terrified because they're like, God damn it, this hen, she's clocking. She's telling me the end is coming. Um, Don't worry, though. Again, world's still here. We're still good. And it turned out the owner was writing these things on the eggs 
and shoving them back up the hen so people could watch her lay it. <laughs> oh, my God. Isn't that horrendous? The poor hen. <laughs> poor thing. Wait, we have to have another warning that's like, do not do this at home. <laughs> Definitely do not do this at home. This is the worst. This human should be prosecuted for animal cruelty. Really? Who had that idea? Literally, who had that idea that was like, wait, what if I put this back in the head? <laughs> put it back. Honestly, just j- jail him. It's the worst. And who wants to start a doomsday cult? Just who thinks of that? But yeah, that that, that was the predictive hen from Leeds, which I thought was a nice one to end on because like if you're going to if you're going to believe the end is coming, I want to believe it from a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's how I want to receive all my bad news. For <laughs> <laughs> chicken. But not not while they're laying the egg. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to shove things back oh. up into a chicken just for me to get bad news. <laughs> Poor chicken. <laughs> well, well, if you were an augurist, you'd be able to get news from a chicken. Ooh, true. That's true. Wow, that was well done. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, Drew. <laughs> working hard working hard but i was also thinking you know Lindsay and i are a big fan of him not fan but um jim baker he's also a doomsday cult his whole thing is about doom and how prepared like to prepare for the the end of the world yes and um, like those fucking uh 40 gallon buckets of food he's trying to sell people that's it he's trying to sell those food the food for the end times and he keeps bringing it up like oh the world's gonna be ending so you better order the food now and better get your food it's it's a real cold I'm intrigued in the case of Jim Baker it's like if you're if you're his PR team like just imagine with me for a second you're this televangelist who makes your money off preaching that the end is coming and everyone's a piece of shit except for the people who believe in G- Jesus in this particular way and you need to buy all these buckets and stockpile in your basement and have a shovel ready to dig your toilet because that's the only part I really remember <laughs> what are you going to do with the doo doo <laughs> <laughs> this is how you dig the latrine <laughs> but like no for though pretend you're his pr team covid happens like the early days of covid where people were truly panicking how do you make the call in that moment like do you do you stop and go see i fucking told you or do you keep pushing and say oh it gets worse like that's a gamble you know i feel like you keep pushing because you, you're trying to sell yeah. your slot bucket yeah i guess that's true it's wild and i yeah i think the whole doomsday thing is so fascinating because like in a non-preachy non-doomsday way the world as we know it is ending because we are not taking care of our climate or taking care of our land or our animals and nobody seems to be cracking the shits over that but they are losing their mind losing their shit that jesus might come back such a great point thank you You know, actually, so while you were kind of describing cults and doomsday cults in particular, I was kind of thinking about what um, mind-based, like, people who are particularly vulnerable might be in. And I was kind of thinking about um, just how much adulthood Mm -hmm. is is difficult and nothing prepares you for it um, as as hard as you might try. You know, there's always going to be this feeling of, like, oh, man, this is really, really hard to do. And... I think that part of the appeal of a, of a cult is to have some kind of authoritative figure that takes the place of a parent. Yeah. 
and and you're the child, right? Like this thing that that lets you feel like somebody's making all the choices for you. This is a safe place. There are people who accept you, but most of all, there is a person with eyes on the future and they are guiding mm. you. And there are just so many times in life. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like there's just so many times in life that I wish that I had somebody who had all the answers. And I wish I believed them, you know? And I think that there's something very, very appealing about that. I mean, it's very unfortunate that it happens and that people get taken advantage of um, in this particular way because these are very, very vulnerable people. But it kind of got me thinking along the lines of... um, you know, why would you believe something that's just so ridiculous? And it's kind of like, I I get it. <laughs> I can see it. Yeah. Well, I feel like even the people who we are who have, you know, I feel like technically, technically on paper, us three are real adults, which is hilarious. Um, because I constantly feel disenfranchised on like what life is meant to be. Like I'm an adult and I'm like, I swear adults look like they were having more fun when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, how do you know what you want to do and, like, the meaning to your life? And it's very stressful and it can be very existential. And especially mental health that's not, you know, cared for. Or back in the day, remember back a few decades ago, what was mental health? Like, you know, there were huge stigmas around it and you can definitely see why why this happens and it's really sad yeah i think that on that same point the idea that in a cult you have somebody telling you uh what's right and wrong for example yeah um or not not just good or bad but like a system of rewards Mm. like you did this particular thing really well i mean we we get addicted to that as children because we're growing and everything is new to us and to have that kind of feedback like you did a really great job at this or there's like a benchmark kind of feeling and achievement kind of feeling nobody Mm -hmm. hands that to you as an adult yeah and it's so funny you mentioned that because I literally set up a thing that is like my own reward system. <laughs> so I've got, <laughs> I only did this in the last week. I've got like all my big goals that I want to do, like write a children's book, write the sci-fi novel that I wanted, write. And under them are like the rewards I can buy myself. And it's like, you can spoil yourself with a designer handbag or a holiday or whatever it is. I like that. Wow. And I don't know why, <laughs> but it motivates me so much more. I need a reward. I, I am a child. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that um, I think it's very relatable. And especially like, you know, we never grow out of needing. I mean, we need it less. But I think that sort of acceptance from other people, like the way that we get that as a child from an authoritative figure like our parents or our guardians or something uh somebody who you know we look up to and then as an adult like we don't really compliment each other as much we don't really um point out each other's growth in a supportive way as much it turns so much more competitive and not at all yeah the the playing field becomes really even um in a way that in some ways it's great but in other ways like we just don't really acknowledge each other in the same way and so i think that it's no surprise that a lot of these cults have a particular leader who is really uh respected or venerated by its people and then this authoritative figure Mm. kind of gives or bestows these sort of um praises or, or compliments in a way that i think 
would be really nice to hear. Like, <laughs> like yeah, I want to game this system. I want to be really good at this particular thing so I get all of this attention and all of these compliments. Yeah. I'm also like an embodied golden retriever of a human. <laughs> so like that would work really well on me. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, I feel that so hard. Yes. <laughs> I mean, other people, I think, are a little bit more self-motivated or a little bit more independent um, in that sort of way. But, uh, you know, when you add loneliness into the mix, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's like, that sounds that sounds fun. It's definitely that sense of community where, you know, that's why, I hate to say it, but a lot of people turn to religion in, uh, in mm. these kind of situations where it's, it, I mean, it's kind of... Religion and doomsday cults mm-hmm. kind of go hand in hand a little bit. Yeah, well, I was saying to my partner that religion, even though we're not religious, like we have friends yeah. who are, and they have such a nice little sweet community that they meet with at least twice a week. And it is very nice and sweet, the support systems they have. And I feel like we need that for science. <laughs> science support group? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, instead of like a Bible study, it's a journal club. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, shall we shall we move on to drew's noise noise cancel out the bad for us drew yeah so on a much lighter topic <laughs> much i guess lighter <laughs> much much more technology oriented i guess um i ended up on less end of the world <laughs> yeah less end of the world <laughs> Yeah, I ended up on active noise canceling or active noise control. So I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably because they're they're basically the same thing. Um, But to get there, I went on a pretty, pretty nice journey. Went from musical theater uh, to microphones to active noise canceling (laughs) uh, with a few steps in between. But I'm the asshole and uh, closed out my tab. So I I have no idea how else I got there. I just remember musical theater and microphones, but you know, that's, that's just, (laughs) that's just. What a dark, dark place you crawled out of. Yeah. Musical theater. I hate musical theater. (laughs) Drew, you were a theater kit. You were a stage crew. (laughs) A stage crew? A singular stage crew? A theater kit. I was. I was indeed. I, uh, I gave myself the, the title, the giver of light. Because I was the light, the lighting board runner, operator. Oh, true. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. <laughs> I kept giving myself greater and grander and grander titles each time. So, like, when I was a freshman, I was just like, light operator. And then by the senior year, I was the giver of light. <laughs> did people use those terms for you, too? Yes, they, they did. Oh, my God. Oh, anyway, active noise control. We're controlling things. Um, So active noise control or noise cancellation uh, is the method for reducing any unwanted sound by the addition of a second sound specifically designed to cancel out the original. So as we know, sound waves are, sorry, sound is pressure waves. Uh, At least I I hope we know. Mm -hmm. Um, Sound is a wave. So it inherently has a frequency and amplitude to it. So the process of noise canceling is Mm -hmm. simply, and simply I'm going to use in quotation marks here, uh, is having a speaker emit a sound wave with the same amplitude, but with an inverted phase or antiphase relative to the original sound. So in this case, the waves combine to form a new wave through the process known as interference. 
I'm sure you two are very familiar, but I'm going to speak for the rest of us. <laughs> yes, speak for the audience. <laughs> for the audience, this specific type of inf- interference is known as destructive interference, where the original sound phase wave meets the produced sound antiphase wave, resulting ideally in a net zero wave being produced. So they, they kind of come together and they because they're antiphase to each other, they produce basically a zero wave. But that's, of course, an ideal situation. Here, in reality, we typically just get reduced noise from, from the noise control. So modern active noise control is performed by analog circuits or digital signal processing, where adaptive algorithms are used to analyze the waveform of background noise and then generate a sound that is antiphase to the background noise. So as I was saying, you're going for that destructive interference again. So, and then a transducer then creates the sound wave with the same amplitude that is directly proportional to the original sound. And uh, as I mentioned before, yeah, this creates the destructive interference, resulting in reduced volume of background noise. So now we move on to applications of active noise control. And this I found kind of the most interesting part. So there are two applications. The first is one-dimensional noise control, and the, the second is three-dimensional noise control. I never knew those were different. <laughs> yeah, they're very, very different. Um, so one-dimensional <laughs> noise control is the easier of the two applications. And here... Listen to this. So the term one-dimensional noise control is refers to, this is from the Wikipedia article, a simple pistonic relationship between the active speaker and the listener. Pissed on between the two of them? A pistonic. <laughs> like, a, like a piston. I don't know what that... I don't know what that means. Why is there simply in front of it? A, sorry, it's a, it's a simple piston relationship. So it's not simply. Simple. Can you stop saying it like that? What? what you, it's pistonic. What do you want? <laughs> You're making Lindsay it's, uncomfortable. Just say pistonic as fast as you can so that you don't say pistonic. I'm not saying pistonic. <laughs> I'm saying pistonic. That's, that is what you're doing. <laughs> Sorry, my enunciation is shit. <laughs> no, it's too good. That's the problem. <laughs> so let's just stop stop saying that and what the fuck does it mean? Yes. Yes. What is pistonic? The Wikipedia article kind of left me high and dry here and just like just said that and didn't describe it at all. So <laughs> I kind of had to you know, piece it together. I almost said piss it together. Lindsay broke you. I had to piece it together what it sort of meant. So to me, and this is like, you know, my third eyes woke at this point. Uh, it was the four, dist- <laughs> four distinct phases. So a piston has four distinct phases of intake, compression, ignition, and exhaust. So the active speaker, this is kind of the metaphor I took it as, the active speaker, which cancels out the background noise, has an intake phase where it takes in the external noise, a compression, a compression phase where it generates the antiphase wave, an ignition phase where the antiphase wave is amplified, and finally an exhaust phase where the, the resulting two waves come together, which is reduced, and then that's heard by the listener. So I was not a huge fan of this analogy. I think, <laughs> think this is what they meant. I'm not sure. That makes sense to me. I, this is me just kind of piecing it together because, as I said, the Wikipedia article left me high and dry. Um, but the the one thing that I feel like was left out was the core concept of one-dimensional noise control. And that's basically the, the, the direction of the noise doesn't really matter where it comes from because it's basically just being, you know, when you think about uh, noise-canceling headphones – no matter where you move your head, the headphones are staying on. So it's it's a very simple like direction where the the, the noise canceling is just one direction that's going in. You know what I mean? Right. 
Right. Or I would have at Oh, I see. I would have at least thought that like the three dimensions get reduced to one because it's like you might have sound coming from yeah. every which way, but just like you said, like it's entering <laughs> kind of in one direction. Yeah, it's it's being it's the that's the the whole concept of one D versus three D is that it's this one constant direction that the, the noise is being cancelled in. So that's that's what I found was was and it was completely left out of the article. It was just kind of like, oh, the one dimension's this. It's a pistonic relationship. But, you know. <laughs> hmm. Looks like we'll go back and edit. Yeah, we'll make it better. We'll make it better. Yeah. For fu- future people like us. So though it's easier, problems still exist with this process of noise cancelling. So you may have noticed that noise cancelling headphones are great at reducing noise of like, like constant engine noise from an airplane or something, or the hum of an air conditioning or heating unit. So these constant noises are easy to cancel out because of uh-huh. their consistency and frequency. So these noises tend to be of lower frequency range, and inherently that's, which inherently makes them easier to deal with because they're not so active and you know, they're not high energy, so they're not bouncing off the walls and things. They're, they're, they tend to be pretty consistent. And then because they're a consistent noise, they tend to be easier to cancel out. So that just makes 1D noise cancellation a little bit easier. So now we move on to some dumb facts that I know because I'm a sound nerd. So (laughs) when it comes to extremely low frequencies within the human hearing range of 20 hertz to 20K hertz, so these, these very, very low frequencies tend not to be heard directly through your ears. They actually penetrate your skull. So that's why, mm. that's why like when you... That's so gnarly. Isn't it? That's why when you hear like a bass drum or something, it feels like it's all around you. Well, it is technically all around you because the sound's bouncing off all, of, all around you. But it's also like coming, it's not directly coming in your ears. It's coming in through your skull. Does it resonate with, with your skull? I don't know if it's... Is that why like some live music really feels like your whole skull is rattling i guess it could also just be the pressure of of like the actual bass drum being mm. or i guess it could be the wave like the pressure of the sound Actually, wave i don't know can i go on a mild little mini side tangent with you absolutely Drew? have you heard of have you heard of um back in i think it was like the 40s and 50s the u.s was doing research into basically like a noise gun or a noise ray to make people feel uncomfortable with really low frequency um uh, waves and because are you bringing up havana syndrome right now i don't think it's havana was this when people felt uneasy all the time no so havana syndrome is in the headlines right now so we are recording this in january 2022 um havana syndrome is that american americans in havana have been reporting um symptoms like what you just described and the idea was that um it was or one of the ideas was thought to be that like Russian spies were fucking with U.S. spies by pointing like really low frequency microwave guns at them, making them feel really uncomfortable. Are they doing it again? Because so this happened in the 60s or the 70s. I think it was maybe it wasn't Havana. It could have been um, in Cuba. But there was a place where there was American, um, what are they called? Like delegates living living in a place and they, they kept getting sick with these like the same type of things and yes it all ties back into this research of low frequency um waves that can make you feel very very uneasy um and can make you physically sick based on the pressures 
um, because that, that that's amazing. You just came up with that is literally headlines like today. That's like a trending <laughs> Twitter like hashtag today. Hello, Editor Drew here. Let me just clear this up right now. Yes, Sarah and Lindsay are talking about the same thing and have both failed to realize that Havana is in fact in Cuba. I apologize if you have facepalm during this segment, but geography is apparently not our strong suit. Now back to our discussion. That is so cool. Well, they so they did some experiments on this years and years ago. They put people in a theater and they played different low frequency things um, just below soundtracks of different movies. And they had their control and then obviously their study group and found that when they did the low frequency, this is when people felt more uneasy, more unwell. They apparently, I don't know if this is true, but apparently in some horror movies, they tend to add it into the soundtrack even though it's very very low frequency um, we can't hear it but it's meant to make you feel more uneasy wow. that's really cool isn't that cool i th- thought you were talking about the brown note and <laughs> no do you know what that is there's supposed to be a frequency that if it's played it makes you shit yourself oh no <laughs> the mythbusters did a thing about it Another dated reference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Mythbusters. I'll have to go back and find it. Yeah, the brown note. Look it up. It's great. <laughs> oh, I'm just I'm doing a quick skim about the, the news of Havana Syndrome in the news at the moment. Wild. Well, while you're doing that, while you're doing that. Wild. So a cool fact about high frequencies now, which are specifically used in emergency sirens. They're, they're very easy to produce loud noises at those high frequencies, but... It is very difficult for a listener to determine the position of the source. So that's why when you like when a siren goes well, not goes by, but when you hear it behind you or in front of you, you're not sure like, oh, where is it coming from? You're never sure because it's 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 so hard for you to actually like pinpoint the source. Yes. So um, there's there's two factors that go into that. So uh, the frequency is so small that multiple waves can pass into the closer ear before passing into the further ear. So this basically means the brain cannot figure out the difference in the time interval between the two ears. So that's how your brain kind of pinpoints location is, is figuring out the difference between the, the two ears that the sound is coming from. So you're not able to pinpoint the location oh. because it's not able to figure out which ear heard it first. And in addition, this, the sound tends to bounce off of everything. So it bounces off our other cars or other buildings, just anything around you. And so the sound that's is technically amazing. coming from multiple different directions. So you have no idea which direction it's coming from, which is why it's so hard to figure out where an emergency siren is coming from. So those are two little little tangents about sound that I just love. <laughs> that's amazing. I never really thought about that because I always, I always feel very flustered when there is an emergency siren like around you and you can't see the lights because you really don't know where it's coming from. Yeah, that's true. And I just thought, I just thought that was my own bad positioning. Like my own internal GPS was bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have a reason behind it now. It's oh, it's wow. really hard to tell where it's coming from. That is so cool. Thank you for educating me, Drew. No problem. Now back to actual noise cancelling, not just noise itself, because I like noise. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Drew, and I like noise. I already said I like loud noises. I think they're funny, but <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> that was a few episodes ago. I don't even remember what episode that was. Anyway, <laughs> so three-dimensional active noise control is very different than 1D noise control because uh, it requires a lot of microphones and speakers and the process is way more expensive and more difficult. So as, as mentioned previously, one-dimensional active noise control is much easier to achieve as the single listener remains stationary compared to the noise that's being canceled. So three-dimensional noise control means that there could be multiple listeners, 
There could be one listener that moves throughout the space, or the listener could simply turn their head, making the noise control much more difficult. Because if you think about it, if you're trying to cancel the noise and you turn your head, it kind of changes, you know, changes everything. So would this be used when, like, if you're in a room, no headphones, and the room's trying to cancel noise all around you? It, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you're trying to cancel. So this would be this would be like an airplane cabin or or a car interior. Oh. That's that's where it's used. It's not. It's 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 used in those like situations. That makes sense. So um, an example that they gave was uh, a wavelength of 800 hertz, a sound at wavelength 800 hertz, uh, which happens to be double the distance of the average person's left ear to right ear, which is very cool. Um, could easily be reduced by active noise canceling system if the noise was coming directly at the listener. However, if the noise were coming from the side of the listener, it could be canceled in one ear and amplified in the other. So basically, you'd be hearing it like you'd be hearing it in one ear and just like completely not hearing it in the other, which I found very interesting. And high frequency sounds of a thousand hertz tend to be canceled and reinforced unpredictably when coming from different directions. So basically, the most effective 3D noise canceling involves low frequency sounds, and um, this is typically used, as I said, for airplane cabins or car interiors. So they'll protect against engine noise, but won't protect against non-repetitive random noise. So that's why, you know, one, to, to kind of bring back, um, you know, noise-canceling headphones, uh, this, they suffer from the same thing, where if someone were talking to you, that's very hard to cancel out because it's a non-repetitive, um, very, very random noise that they're making. Um, and that's very hard to cancel out. So that's, that's just, you know, if you want to cancel those noises, uh, we move on to the next topic, which is passive noise control. So passive noise control, unlike active noise control, um, tends to just be like the use of insulators or sound absorption tiles or mufflers to, re- to passively reduce the noise. So these materials absorb sound waves, thereby preventing them from being heard. So once again, active noise canceling is best suited for low frequencies, making positive noise control much more, sorry, making passive noise control much more effective for high frequencies. So this is why I put a rug down in my recording room to absorb some of the sound versus trying to actively cancel any unwanted sound. So that's kind of why, you know, we, we put things in our rooms so that it doesn't sound like, you know, it doesn't echo all over the place. It's because we have passive noise canceling, which I found very interesting. Yeah, that makes sense when you like move into a new place or you go somewhere that is empty and how eerie it feels when you do have all of the weird echoes and it, you don't yeah. feel cushioned by your noise. Yeah. That's really cool. That's why I put rugs and, and, you know, tapestries up. I don't have tapestries, but that's why we used to put them up uh, just to, to let sound didn't bounce all over the place and, and you know, be very loud. Uh, so yeah, um, you know, passive noise control is just, it's sometimes noise is just far too complex to try and actively cancel out. So that's why we have passive noise control. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's active noise control in a nutshell. And sorry, it's very short, but, uh, I got nerd sniped on this topic because I'm an audio nerd at heart. So yeah, that's active noise control. It's great. Thanks, Drew. <laughs> no problem. I, I, I love noise. So. <laughs> that is awesome. I never appreciated that so much science was going on inside my headphones. Like I just flip on like the little noise canceling <laughs> button and I'm like, there is peace. There's peace, <laughs> peace in the world. <laughs> Let there be peace. <laughs> I kind of want to imagine it like my mind palace just acquired a fuck ton of new tapestries. <laughs> That's my new silence in my my beautiful mind palace library. That is really fucking cool. And I also never knew that there was three dimensional versus one dimensional. Like really thought that it was all one dimensional. Yeah. Thank you, Drew. Why do I feel like Drew? Drew is like 
our resident scientist. He really is. (laughs) (laughs) He's much more of a scientist than we are. I know. I know. I'm over here like that's not true. I'm over here like I can't calculate slope. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about imaginary friends. And Drew's like, this is exactly how noise cancellation works. (laughs) Oh my god, there's two people and there's two types of people. Oh my god, I think I think someone wrote a review and like one sentence was Drew's such a nerd. It's amazing. So there you go. No, and he's single. Ladies. Wow, that's that's a good good transition. If you want to jump into our DMs on Instagram or Twitter, don't forget to follow us. Go ask Alice Pod. There's a heavy vetting process, and it's me. We will hold interviews. (laughs) (laughs) If you're shortlisted, you'll get to meet him. Oh oh no. Yeah, yeah. We can't just have anyone showing up, Steve. Shall we talk about imaginary friends? I'm really excited for this. So imaginary friends. I think the way to start with this is rather obvious, which is by asking you both. Did you have an imaginary friend growing up? Yes. Yeah, totally. Many different ones. Did both of you do? (laughs) Yes, both of us did. (laughs) Is it normal to? Well, so what's interesting is 65% of seven-year-olds are thought to have imaginary friends. That's about two thirds. And between the three of us, two thirds of us had imaginary friends. So that's kind of perfect. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's kind of perfect. You didn't have an imaginary friend? I don't think that I did. I will. I'll get into this with a few personal anecdotes. And like I told you guys before, I really, really want to hear yours. And especially to the audience, as you're listening along, if there is a piece of this that like sparks your imagination, um, either in real time or your deep memories of imagination, I really want to know about it. Please, please, please text us, <laughs> tweet us at Go Ask Alice Pod. <laughs> Basically, text me because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Whether you're talking about Just being a good person, being a good artist, being a good manifester. Whatever it is, children are so fucking good at it. Children, I think children make the best artists. I think children have the best imagination. Whenever we do science outreach, children ask the best questions. They do. They're not they're not hampered by scary societal norms or anything <laughs> like that. Like they just genuinely are curious and excited about the world, which is so lovely. Yeah, the whole world is new. So I Inevitably, because we were all children once. If this reminds you of any of your own childhood memories or your own childhood, like, you know, fantastical imaginings, I really want to hear about it. Um, I think it'd be very sweet. Or if any of our listeners have kids and you want to share bits of what your kids imagine or their imaginary friends, um, I would be thrilled to hear all about it. Even though I don't want kids myself, I still love kids. Um, I think that they are they're just so fun oh you're gonna be the best auntie to my future kids (laughs) oh it's an honor (laughs) just just not when you're pregnant no yeah no she'll be afraid of me when i'm pregnant (laughs) so this dive that i took first of all i'll say that i ended up here i also deleted my um history by accident but i from what i could recover stopped in neck beards for a minute (laughs) (laughs) my people 
I don't know. Oh. Thank God I ended up in imaginary friends. I feel like there would have been too much negativity for one episode to be like, no, cancel out the noise of all the fucking neck beards. And then there's just these death cults. So maybe it's a good thing. But um, I ended up really spending my time actually reading an academic paper that was a psychology paper from 2007 about the study and the history of the psychological phenomenon of imaginary friends. So this is going to take a little bit more of a psychological perspective. And the reason... Perfect. There's the reason is written documentation of imaginary friends really did not begin until the 1890s. Really? Yeah, there is scant history of imaginary friends. And uh, both the wiki article and the scientific article kind of postulate on why that might be the case. And uh, I also thought that was very interesting, because it gets into like cultural differences. So for example, um, it's very likely that in many different cultures, but particularly in Indian cultures. Um, here I am just blatantly overgeneralizing the entire diverse country of India because I realized that there are many traditions, <laughs> many languages, many walks of life in India. But um, speaking very, very broadly, um, the notion of past lives are a lot more readily accepted there than they are um, in you know more Western countries like the United States. So some cultures just believe that... Children are not interacting with imaginary friends, but they are reenacting and digesting pieces of their past life that they came from. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So why write about it as an imaginary friend when it's just a part of reality? It's just a part of, of your past life. Yeah. Um, another theory that came about is that this is a modern phenomenon, possibly because imaginary friends are kind of born in this situation where a child has time that they are left alone and time that is dedicated to playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these are things that don't really come about when there's, you know, when a child is forced kind of to, to work like an adult or be really busy like an adult, you know. Um, or have a lot of siblings that they have to help care for. and Yeah, exactly. So there is this idea that maybe an imaginary friend um, could be the result of a privileged and cushiony life, uh, lifestyle of, of early childhood. There's different theories. I, I don't think that anybody feels extremely confident as to why uh the study of imaginary friends really came about in the 1890s. But kind of going back to what you were saying, Sarah, about mental health, even just a few decades ago, being uh, completely different. Um, it was funny. I was reading a quote that was from, I think it was maybe from the 30s or like early, early 1900s. And they were basically like acknowledging that it's kind of laughable and ridiculous to be talking about imaginary friends because this would have been scoffed at decades earlier. And so I kind of get the impression that in the 1890s, people were like, oh, they're just playing pretend. Why are you taking them seriously? Wow. <laughs> so it was very much written off, I think, earlier. So it, it may very well be that imaginary friends have been just a part of childhood for time immemorial, like, you know, forever, forever. But maybe people never really thought about it or took it seriously because there is actually written evidence of people being like, our forefathers would have laughed at us for taking this seriously enough to study. <laughs> That's how you know you're doing something good, though, that previous generations many, many decades ago would have laughed at you. <laughs> That's how you know you're doing something good. Yeah. Kind of tied up in that, um, the notion of childhood is a very, very modern concept, actually, according, I guess, psychologically. Um, it is a 
modern concept that I think was popularized in the 1950s. Um, in fact, the concept of a childhood in general in the Western world dates back to the 17th century. So the concept of childhood is about 400 years old in Western society. What was it considered before that? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Just, you know, it makes me think of those like Renaissance babies that look like adults. It's like maybe that's just like how they saw babies. <laughs> Because they're exhausted, two years old, having to earn money and tidy the house. Yeah, look at this small man. (laughs) Small, drunk little man. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I thought what was interesting was from a psychological perspective, they um, really intertwine, at least this paper that I was reading, um, which is cited heavily in the wiki article, which is why I ended up reading it. Um, The concept of an imaginary friend is very tied up in the concept of childhood. And so it wasn't really until the 1950s that the idea of dedicated time for play and imagination was considered important. So I think prior to the 1950s, that sort of sequestering of um, like our stages in life and also what is emotionally and intellectually developmentally important. I just said a lot of adverbs and I don't remember where the sentence was going. Um, <laughs> no, I. it makes sense. It was like before then, they, they might not have thought that playing was as important as it is for, for developing different skills. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. That is so cool. And also really, really depressing for the kids who didn't have playtime. I know. I want to imagine they did things like, you know, ran really fast past a fence with a stick or something. You know, maybe they still had a good time. Yeah, they're probably healthy, hopefully. But I thought that it was very interesting, uh, the theories as to why children have imaginary friends. And I think that this, I suspect, will jog some of your memory. And and I'll elaborate on why I don't think I had an imaginary friend, but I still did some of this. So most obvious is the need to socialize. You're a kid, you got to socialize with your peers. So you make a few up. <laughs> like like when your sims get lonely, they just start talking mm-hmm. to themselves. <laughs> or me. <laughs> I do that. Another um, psychologist posits the idea that maybe the concepts or the abstract ideas of memory versus pretend versus reality are very difficult for children to disentangle from one another. So they might be trying to process memories or other cognitive things while playing. It sounds like it's kind of living in a dream world. You know, pretend and reality and memory is just all blurred into one thing. Wow, that would be so (laughs) fascinating to experience as an adult now when they're so very different. Like that would make a really cool premise for like a VR game. I think. Yeah, it would. I feel like it's also just a trip on acid or something like that would get you there. Some Actually, some psychologists refer to this as a byproduct of an intense imagination. So what if your imagination was so powerful that you really could not escape it to determine what was reality and what was fiction? Wow, that is really cool. That's a cool premise for a story. This is not the last one, but it's still my, my personal favorite is a targeted focus on wish fulfillment and coping. So I love this because it's the idea that children want something, that they are not yet rich enough, powerful enough, big enough to accomplish. And so they are enacting the fulfillment of those wishes. This is like pretending you won an Oscar in the shower using your shampoo. Yes, yes. This is so cute. 
This is like if you can dream it, you can be it, kid. <laughs> I have so many anecdotes about this. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us one. Tell us one. So when I was three years old, there was all these big kids where my parents used to go. Was, there was like a lake clubhouse, whatever. Um, and there were all these kids that were like, you know, 12, 13. And I walk up to them when they were, when I was three and they'd say, hey, Drew, how old are you? And I'd puff up my chest and I'd go, I'm 10. They would all oh, die of laughter. They'd be like, they like pull me over, be like, "Hey Drew, do it again. How old are you?" And puff up my chest. I'm ten. <laughs> so, yeah. And also, when I was little, I used to make up stories about this this friend that I had who would always do these fantastical things, like jumping out of cars, and and he could like lift up Ooh. a thousand pounds, and it's just like just all this stuff, and and it was always. My parents always said I had such a vivid imagination about things because these stories would start out very, very, like, sounding very true, and then they'd all of a sudden, like, <laughs> jar off into, like, fantastic situations. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. It'd be like my friend was sitting in the car, and he unbuckled the seatbelt, and he jumped out the back, and he started rolling, and he jumped up and chased after the car, <laughs> and, like, it would just, it would just, like... It would be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? You sure? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that would be so fun Aww. to listen to. I, you know, similar to that, um, he's going to kill me, but Daniel, my partner, tell, tells me this hilarious story I quote all the time. So he grew up with, with, um, three older sisters and he like entered the room and they were talking about something that happened before he was born. And I think he took offense to that. Like, no, I'm a big kid too. (laughs) They were like, you know, he was like, Oh, I know that. Like whatever they were talking about. And they're like, how could you have known that? Like how, you know, where were you? And he was, I I forget how the setup went, but he basically said, I'm 40 years old. (laughs) (laughs) The stage he could think of. And they were like, where were you? And he was like, behind the door. (laughs) He was 40 years old and waiting behind the door. (laughs) Oh my God, that's that's such a little kid's hiding spot. It's just like, oh, I was behind the door. I have one that I think you guys are going to die about. So when I was young, like under 10 years old, I used to get bullied a lot because kids are the worst. And because I'm very passive, I would always come up with my comebacks and what I should have said when I'm in the shower. So I'd be having a shower and I'd be like chatting to myself with these comebacks, like pretending I was having the conversation again and be like, wow, you know, this is what I would have said. (laughs) Put that, put that bitch in her place. Never happened. Um, But one day I was doing this, you know, washing my hair and I hear like a knock on the wall and it's my dad and he's like, who are you chatting to? <laughs> and I, I died because in my little, like, eight-year-old pea-sized brain, I'm like, the shower, you know, running water. No one can hear through that. Didn't understand how sound waves work. <laughs> so for months to years, I'd say, at least once a week, I'd have these little, like, little conversations with myself, trying to amp myself up to, you know, not be bullied. Um, and, yeah, and then Dad must have heard it one day and was like, who are you chatting to? And... I was mortified. Obliterate. <laughs> Obliterated. Yes, I died. It yes, it was horrifying. Um, but I I'll stick in so, can I stick in my other story that I think you'll die for? Please. 
is that when I was really young, like two or three years old, apparently I used to run around and act as if someone was chasing and tickling me. Like I'd get down on the ground and like be like, no, no, stop, don't tickle me. And like have full on conversations with a thing that was not there. There was no one there. Oh my God. Um, And I used to get night terrors as well. So I'd have really bad nightmares and screams. And it was at the point where my dad, not a religious man, legitimately said to my mother, should we seek an exorcism? <laughs> like, <gasps> what is happening with our daughter? Because <laughs> my night terrors were really bad. And he was joking, but I think Sammy, Sammy, seriously, he was like, oh, my God, what is she? She's <sighs> giggling at ghosts and screaming in her sleep. Um, I have no, no memory of it. That would be freaky as a parent. And it's funny you say that because another thing that is, like, postulated why – people never wrote about imaginary friends is that um, I th- they attribute a lot of, or they think that a lot of people historically attributed imaginary friends to like supernatural beings. Like they thought that, oh, these children are oh. actually communicated with supernatural mm-hmm. beings, not just the past life. It's interpret- the children of the corn. <laughs> Not just the past life interpretation, but the idea that you are talking to some some otherworldly being. And uh, I love that, too, because I had like a separate section of notes that's like, what do adult imaginary friends look like? And it really blurs the line because when, for example, writers or poets are talking about their muse, I mean, that's an imaginary friend. Or when you are crafting... Um, you know, like if you're mm-hmm. Stephen King and you're writing a novel and you've got like all of these characters and this whole universe where things happen, like, you know, isn't fiction or the process of writing fiction mm. an imaginary friend that you're kind of acting out? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wanted to add my own, which is really not nearly as good, admittedly, as <laughs> exorcism. <laughs> but I had for the longest time, I don't know what happened or, you know, Again, maybe this is the past life kind of um, attribution. But when I was five years old, I remember very, very candidly and and lucidly saying to myself, I'm old enough to have a crush on someone now. (laughs) And my entire life, (laughs) since I was, since that one day of kindergarten, I had just been absolutely crazy over the idea of having a boyfriend. I wanted a boyfriend more than anything in the whole world. When I was in middle school, I had my first boyfriend. I cried tears of happiness. I was so happy to have a boyfriend. And my entire childhood, I was super attached to my teddy bear. And when I would go to sleep, I would pretend that we were like, you know, in Greece, like, you know, like you've got your, all these high schoolers like had their like cool boyfriend, like whatever, like on their arm and, and, and what have you. And so every night going to sleep, I would like curl up with my teddy bear, put his arm around me and pretend that this was my high school boyfriend. Oh. My entire- <laughs> oh, that is so cute. <laughs> I always, I you know, just wanted the the football jacket, you know, arm around your shoulder. <laughs> and you got him. Now you got Daniel. And now I've got Daniel. <laughs> Dreams do come true, kids. <laughs> um, which segues segues nicely into the final theory as to why children have imaginary friends, which is that they. Uh, the idea that they may want to enact events that they have not yet experienced or that they can or cannot do without help. So I loved this quote, um, achieve above their social ability. <laughs> Very similar to like, 
you know, I'm five years old, but I wish I was a high schooler with a boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) But it also made me crack up because I was imagining like, you know, we get these like kitchen play sets for kids and then they just like pretend that they're working as a chef and stuff. Like that's above their social capability. (laughs) (laughs) I was exactly thinking that with like the little doctor, doctor nurse kids and their kids are diagnosing you. (laughs) And it's like, you're doing free labor. You should be paid for your time. (laughs) (laughs) I used to love stuff like that though. As a kid, I had a fake checkout loved my checkout i thought i was going to be a checkout chick for life because i loved it so much (laughs) um then i became a checkout chick at 14 and i hated it yeah it sucks that's probably the worst job i've ever had in my life (laughs) yeah that's so cute i mean you get to make beep sounds all the time like that's kind of fun as a kid yeah it is So yeah, I just I loved the image of little kids just being too big for their britches. Too big for their britches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Too big for the britches. And, you know, just compensating. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah, that's really the story of um imaginary imaginary friends and and I was truly shocked that it is such a short history. And, and such a relatively new concept. Yes. So especially if people are historians and listening and you know of like historical examples of imaginary friends, I clearly the field needs you. That would be very, very cool to know about. Yes. Yes. I would love to hear about <laughs> some ancient imaginary friends. Especially if your kid draws. Oh, my God. Children's art is just my fa- I love when kids draw like potato people. That's my fucking favorite thing. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that. They just abstractly understand you've got legs and I'm mostly looking at your face and it's just like legs and face. That's that's what people look like. (laughs) Oh, I love it. It's so cute. Oh, that was amazing. I'm so glad we finished on your topic, Lindsay. Yeah, me too. Well, awesome. I know I've asked a lot of our audience this episode. I just have all of these demands. (laughs) It's on the test. <laughs> I'll say it again. Go ask Alice Pod. Please send me your children's art. I fucking love it. Um, and just talk to us about whatever the hell else, really. Just give me a reason to live, I guess. And Sarah has the uh, Instagram account at Go Ask Alice. Nope. Yes. Yeah. Go Ask Alice Podcast. Yeah. Both Instagram and Twitter will put up the question of the week days before we record. So you can put in your answers. Um, and yeah, keep an, keep an eye and an ear peeled for when we eventually release our Patreon. Woo! And you can support you can support our ventures, which would be very, very nice of you. And Drew, if you want to hang out with <laughs> Drew, you really can't. You really can't. You need to get on Bumble. Um. <laughs> on Bumble in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Send us your, your we'll, dating we'll CV. <laughs> I only swipe right, so we'll match. <laughs> there you go, ladies. That's all you got to do. You just got to show up. You just got to show up. <laughs> oh, that's all we're trying to do in life. Just show up. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for showing up. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
As I go running merrily along, along. <laughs> jingle jangle, oh, ain't you glad you single, jingle jangle, and that song ain't so, so very, very far, far from wrong. wrong.